By my calculations, we're nine days out. It's that time of year. Christmas is coming. It kind of takes me back to one of my favorite Christmas memories back in 92. And all the millennials right now are going, they, they had Christmas back in 92? We did, after we took the wagon out and cut down a tree and brought it into the log cabin. But that was actually a Christmas that I had really waited for. In fact, our whole family did. It was a big deal. And, and you say, yeah, we all wait, but we waited four months for that. You say, well, you kind of have Christmas, and then 12 months later, you have Christmas again. It's 12 months. But we actually put our tree up and waited for four months for Christmas. It was kind of a big deal, so much so that the news in our little town came and did a, uh, I was on TV uh, by a Christmas tree in Sioux City, Iowa. It's a big deal. I don't know if you knew about it, but now you do. But we were waiting for something to arrive actually for someone to arrive. And earlier that year, I was 12 years old, and our family had taken a trip to Costa Rica to meet what would become my sisters and my brother, because God had laid it on my parents' heart to adopt. And as they started praying these crazy prayers, they said, what if we didn't adopt one? What if we adopted a whole sibling group? I remember going to that orphanage and looking around, and it kind of rocked my world because I saw windows that were broken out and cement floors. And there's no doubt that if it had been in the States, it would have got shut down. But the people there were doing everything they could with everything that they had. And actually, this place was much better situation for my brothers and my brother and sisters than where they'd been living before. And so we were on that process. We were waiting for the final details to arrive so we could actually might have my parents go and pick them up and bring them back. And it was getting close to Christmas. We just thought, what if we wait until they arrive and have Christmas together because it's such an incredible time of year. But it went a little longer than we were planning. And I don't know if you've ever seen a live Christmas tree in a house after four months. But no, actually, we had a fake one. So it was fine. It looked the same as last year. But then they finally arrived. I remember them flying into Omaha, in the Epley Auditorium, or not Auditorium, Airport. That would have been a bad thing. (laughs) Epley Airport. And they got off, and our church had gathered there to welcome them. And this was a whole new cultural experience. We got to the escalators. We spent about 40 minutes on the escalators because they had never seen escalators before. So we went down, we went up. We went down, we went up. Finally, we got home. We started opening these gifts. And it was good, and they were happy with it. But that wasn't the most incredible thing for them. The gifts. I remember as we were trying to continue to communicate, my older brother had taken maybe a semester of Spanish at that point, so there's a lot of charades going on. And the interpreter, as we were talking, they, they started trying to figure out, like, is, is this where we're staying? Like, we get to stay here? And when you say this is our family, what do you mean by that? They're going to be our family, like, for good? And I remember the thing that rocked them the most was not the presence, but the position that they found in our family. I want to dive into Luke chapter 1 this morning as we look for, and I want to ask you, what are you waiting for this Christmas? And we're going to take a journey. I'm going to let you know right now, we're going to try and plow through this whole thing, so we're going to be moving. But I think it's important to see the whole picture in order to understand what's happening here. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 says, In the days of Herod... King of Judah, 
There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, right away, we see Luke starting to present this story. It almost has this feel of once upon a time, there was this old couple, and they had no kids. And as you start to think through that, the context of that just starts to awaken and become alive, because you think of that situation. You think of Elizabeth, and you think of Zechariah, as they're advancing in years without any kids, wondering, who will care for us? It wasn't that they could use their retirement to take care of it for them. They didn't have other things in the government that would help provide. There's probably this fear kind of cropping up a little bit of, it's just you and I, and when we get old, when we can't care for ourselves, what will happen then? And not only that, but verse 25 goes on to tell us what Elizabeth's feeling, that she had been feeling reproach and disgrace, that the society as a whole would look at them and they would look down on them. They would think that God must be punishing them for some reason because they don't have any kids. Not only that, they're getting advanced in years, and they were righteous. They'd been following God, no doubt. They'd been praying for years, God, would you bless us with a kid? And it hadn't happened. And so they're entering in all of this, but as the first readers would have read this, they would have gone, ah, oh, I, see, I see what you're doing here, Luke. Because this reminds me of another story. This takes me back to another story of an older couple that had no kids that God wanted to do something incredible with, Abraham and Sarah. And so he continues on into uh, verse 5, or, or sorry, into verse 8. Now, while he, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, now, let's talk about Zechariah. So Zechariah was a priest. He was actually from the tribe of Levi, who then had uh, Aaron that became the first high priest. And we've been talking a lot about this in Hebrews as we've journeyed through it. And so Zechariah was one of the priests. Now, at this time in history, there were eighteen to 20,000 priests. And so they would divide them up into 24 groups, 24 divisions, and those priests would get to serve in the temple and take care of duties uh, of, of leading the worship, of reading scripture, of, of offering the sacrifices. And they would go two times a year and spend a week of the year uh, in the temple taking care of their priestly duties. So Zechariah is at one of his weeks, one of his two for the year. And it goes on to say, that he was chosen by lot to enter in the temple uh, of the Lord and burn incense. Before we move on anymore here too, it's important to understand that this is an opportunity of a lifetime, literally. Because as a priest, you could only offer burnt offerings of incense one time in your life. And there were many priests because of the number that never got that opportunity even once. 
But Zechariah, in this moment, in this time, gets this opportunity to offer the burnt incense. Verse 10 goes on to say, And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of, uh, sorry, the whole praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, what's taking place here is that the priest, along with two assistants, would go, and they would go over to the altar, a burnt sacrifice. And the assistant would be carrying this golden bowl. And they would take these coals and put them inside this golden bowl. And then the priest would walk with the assi- uh, assistants back over to the altar inside the temple, to the altar of incense. And as they would put these coals onto the altar, then the two assistants would leave, leaving the priest alone to offer this sacrifice, to pour over this sweet fragrance. But what you have to understand is at this point, the altar of incense is the closest to the veil where God's presence resides. This could possibly be the closest that Zechariah would ever experience the presence of God in his entire lifetime. And at the appointed time, as the people were praying, he would pour over this, uh, this offering and this sweet aroma would rise along with smoke that would symbolize the prayers of the Hebrew people rising up to God. And oh, how they had been praying. For 400 years, they've been praying and waiting in silence. The last time that they've heard a prophecy has been from Malachi. They're wondering, has has God forgotten us? Will this be the day that God remembers the promises that he's made? Look what then takes place at this moment. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. (laughs) No kidding. I don't think angels are what we think they are. They're not little chubby guys with wings, okay? These are incredibly remarkable and beautiful creatures that God's created. And all of a sudden, as he's as close to God's presence as he, he can possibly be, this angel appears on the right side of the altar. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. It really makes me wonder. I wonder what Zechariah had been praying. Because no doubt as a priest, walking righteously before God, he's continued to come to the temple and pour out his prayer that God would rescue his people that he would forgive his people, that he would restore his people and redeem his people. And there's no doubt that the people that are joined in prayer with him have that united heart. But also, on a personal level, there's no doubt that he and his wife, Elizabeth, have continued to pray for a son. But I wonder at this point, at this age in life, if those prayers were long behind him. Maybe he had prayed them at one point, but at this point, he just thought it's not ever going to happen. But the angel says that your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The angel announces you're going to have a son, and I'll even give you his name. It's going to be John. Now, in our day and age, we have a lot of gender reveal 
parties that go on. We get families and friends together. We actually have the capability now to know the gender of this baby before it's even born. Back in 92, we had to wait and see what the gender was when it came out, right? But we, we have these balloons that pop and blue or, or pink confetti fall out, or we have these smoke bombs that go off and there's blue or pink. And right now there's some millennial parents that are thinking, hmm, how can we get an angel to come and tell us the gender and throw in a name while he's at it too? That's incredible. So he tells them that they're going to have this son, but then he tells them about the son and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice in his birth, and he will be great before the Lord, but not great like you and I are thinking, because God's economy of greatness is different. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, uh, in quoting Malachi, says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Then Jesus goes on to say this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Because John would be the prophet that would come directly before the one that they've been waiting for. But then Jesus goes on to say, Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John's going to come and do something incredible. The rest of these verses go on to tell us that he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people that are prepared. Actually, if we want to skip up a couple verses, we go up to 76 and he describes a little bit more through a prophecy what John will be like. And you, child will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John is going to come and do something incredible. He's going to announce this king that is here. And they would have understood this because kings oftentimes in those days, before they went to a place or a town, they would send ahead of them messengers that would prepare the way. They would both tell the people so they could be prepared, and they would prepare roads so the kings could get there. In fact, a lot of the roads that were there at that time have been prepared for that specific reason. Because it had to be smooth, they couldn't get stuck, they had to travel where they're going with safety. Not unlike what we do right now, maybe for our presidents. I remember in elementary school, having the Secret Service come into our school, and they brought dogs in, they cleared out rooms, they made a pass because we had the uh, vice president coming to visit And they sent people ahead of time to plan it, to prepare us. And we were all prepared. And they made a path and a way ready for them because this person was important. But Jesus, later on in Matthew, the king, would say that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And John was going to do something incredible. But John kept getting out of the way, saying, the way that I am the greatest is not by saying, look at me, but look at the one who I am coming before. Look at the one that comes after me. I baptize with water, but the one that comes after me will baptize with fire, with the Holy Spirit. I'm a light, but I'm only shining a light on the greater light. I'm one that's been chosen, but I'm here chosen to tell you about the ultimate one that has been chosen. So how does Zechariah respond? This is a pretty incredible moment. There's a lot of things that have taken place. In verse 18, he goes on to say, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old 
man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, this seems pretty innocent when we first read through this, because it seems like he's just asking, hey, how do I know this? But he's actually giving a tone, and the rest of these verses will show that he's giving doubt. How in the world do I know what you're saying is true? I don't believe it. That's, that can't happen. And he goes on to tell you why. Why? Because I'm too old. I'm, I'm an old man. And my wife, she's advanced in years. And this is a nice way of saying this, right? Paul in Romans actually goes on to describe Abraham, who we talked about earlier, and his story. And he's, he's talking about Abraham and his faith. And he says that he believed God, that he didn't lose faith when he considered his own body, that he was advanced in years and that God was still going to bring a son. And, and this is literally what Paul says in describing Abraham. He, he, he was considering his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> Just waiting for the clock to run out, right? This, is, this sounds a little bit better. Advanced in years. But then Gabriel, the angel, is going to answer him back. He's going he's gonna to answer his doubt because nothing is impossible with God. And Gabriel goes on to say, the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. He confronts Zechariah. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? I think that there's one thing. I think it's very clear. You are never too old to get pregnant. Right? It just, no, I don't quite think that that's what he's going for. I don't, I don't think that's it. But I do think that there's something pretty significant. If you skip ahead into verse 36, there's another story that's about to happen. It's with Mary, and she's going to be told some news that she's going to have a son. And you can imagine what she's feeling in this moment, and, and to show her that nothing's impossible with God. This is what the angel says Behold, your relative Elizabeth. In her old age, I'm sure Elizabeth is like, can we stop saying that? I mean, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I don't think it matters if you're too young. I don't think it matters if you're too old. God has something huge that he's at work in. And your age does not limit you from joining in him. But so many of us get to this place where we say, it seems like it can, it just, it seems like it doesn't seem like it can happen. And then after years of believing that, we say, it can't happen. Or we, we pray and we say, you know, I just don't think I could do that. And after years of praying that, then we say, I can't do that. And we miss out on something incredible that God has planned that he wants us to join in. But what goes on to happen because of this? In verse 20, And behold, you will be silent, the Gabriel saying to Zechariah, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering what his delay was in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and realized, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I love this part of it. I'm trying to imagine 
Okay, we're at the temple. We've been praying and we're waiting and it's going on. It's dragging on and on. And finally, Zechariah comes out and he goes to give them the ironic blessing that would end this. And you all know this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. And it goes on. And so as he comes to conclude the service and he goes to talk, he, he can't talk anymore. And so he begins to sign to the people. And they're like, you went on a walk. That's why it took so long. Oh, you went into the temple. We're praying, okay. And the offering of innocence, yes. And, oh, the, and an angel shows up, right? You were terrified. And you wet your pants. He's telling them this, this story that goes on, but he, he can't quite explain it. And, and so then what happens? And when the time of the service ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And then he shifts gears. Now there's some contrast that's going to take place between these stories. So remember Zechariah's situation. And remember the response that he had. And remember the news that he was given. Because we're going to get something kind of similar. So the first one comes to this priest in Jerusalem, into the temple. And that's where you would expect some big news to show up. But the second one comes to a teenage girl. In kind of the backwoods on the other side of the tracks. In that, that, that little town, oh, what's the name? Nazareth. Yeah, you probably never heard of it. In verse 26, in, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin to be betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her saying, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. At the saying, and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Now, of course, she's, she's troubled. But what's her response going to be? For you have, been, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That sounds familiar. And you shall call his name, the Lord saves. It's actually the literal meaning of Jesus. She gets this news. They've been waiting in silence and says, and he will be great, but his greatness is going to be different than you're expecting. He will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. I can't imagine what's going through Mary's mind. He's going to be the greatest king the world has ever seen. And she's thinking through the Roman Empire and how vast their reach is. But this king is going to rule the entire world. And I am a middle schooler. And God is entrusting this to me. What's her response going to be? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? She's not saying, I don't believe it. She's saying, how are you going to do this? Since I'm a virgin. Now, there's a lot of things she could have said. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I don't have experience. Just think of the incredible 
craziness of this story. The God of the universe is going to entrust his son, his most prized possession, to be mothered by the single middle schooler. Not babysat. If this were me, I would be following Mary around. Don't drop him. Don't drop the baby. Don't drop, right? But he entrusts her. And she's ready. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, a child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then you see Mary's response, which is incredible. Verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Don't let that servant word fool you. It means bond slave. It means slave. God, I have no rights. I've given them all to you. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary bursts into song, enjoying her heart. Even though the road ahead of her is not going to be an easy road. We're going to skip down after she bursts in the song to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And the neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, the time came to circumcise the child. Now I'm thinking about the neighbors rejoicing with her and how incredible peace this is within this. She's lived feeling disgrace all these years and now all these people are joining to rejoice with her. But then I think of Mary. She's young. She's just starting out her life. And God's called her to something huge. And now she's going to live with disgrace. So everyone looks down at this unwed mother, wonders what's going on. And they, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, because that was customary. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John which literally means the Lord is gracious. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked asked for a writing tablet. Now at this point, just think, Zechariah has been sitting, unable to talk, unable to listen, For nine months. I wonder what's continued to roll through his mind as he rehearses the events of that day. The opportunity that he had in in God's presence. And the task that was given him in God's mission. And how his doubt got in the way. And how he's been sitting there thinking of it. And I wonder, the next time that God asked me to do something as crazy as it might feel or think or be... I wonder what his response will be. He gets the tablet and he writes, his name is John. He's sure. And they wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose and he spoke blessing to God because he's been waiting to talk about this. He's got something to share. And fear came upon all their neighbors it seems like whenever God gives big tasks or does big things, our natural response is fear. And all these things were talked about throughout all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah goes on to prophesy. In verse 68, he talks through 
the fact that this God had visited and redeemed his people. He, he had raised up this horn of salvation. He goes on to speak uh, in, in verse 70 that he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old of what we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72, to show mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant. You know what's really interesting as well? You know what Zechariah means? God remembers. God had something set from the beginning, and his plan was going to continue to unfold. He hadn't forgotten about it. God had heard Zechariah's prayer, and Zechariah was walking with God. He hadn't forgotten about it. And he was reminding them of the whole story that was unfolding. Verse 73, the oath that he'd swore to our father Abraham to grant, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. I wonder what's holding you back right now. I wonder what you're waiting for with this Christmas, what you're hoping that this magic day will, will do for you. Because I have this belief, and I see it played out so much, that oftentimes Christmas magnifies the areas in our lives that often take away from our ability to magnify Jesus. Let me say that one more time, because I want you to think about that. Christmas often magnifies the areas in our life that often take away from our ability to magnify Jesus. I don't know what that is if it's kind of such a focal point of what this life is all about and it exposes the areas that we're not living for, for Christ in those areas. I don't, I don't know if it's because there's so many events that try to get packed into the same thing or if, or if there's so many comparisons about what other people are doing during this time. I'm not sure what it is, but I oftentimes see all these things that crop up during the season. I see fear and I see worry and I see anxiety. I see stress. I see jealousy, I see selfishness, I see insecurity and greed, I see pride and busyness, and it just all seems like it comes and accumulates in this time. I think of what I continue to struggle in my life when I'm so frustrated I can't get over the hump with, with busyness. And I think of this past week, I had something every night of the week, and I was frustrated it's not really what I'd wanted plan to happen, but here's why busyness is so dangerous. It takes away from my ability to be fully present and where I'm actually at because I'm always thinking of the next thing or thinking about the thing I just came from. And I miss those things that God has right around me. This, this opportunity this week, I had to be somewhere and I had a bad attitude about it. I'd already committed I was going to be there, but I didn't want to be. So the whole time I'm there, I'm missing opportunities while I'm there because I'm sitting there in this bad attitude because of my busyness. I'm driving this week, and I almost miss another thing. Because I'm on the road, everybody else is driving like maniacs to get their Christmas shopping in, right? Not me, okay? And I pull up to this light, and the light turns green. And we're sitting there for three seconds. What do you do after the light turns green and you're still there for three seconds? Well, nobody, everybody's good. You guys don't honk. And neither do I, because I'm a pastor, right? I waited for the guy behind me to honk. And... 
then eventually the car's still not moving in front of us, so the cars start peeling out and turning around, and, and then I get mine around. And as I'm going by it, there's nobody else in front of this car, so I'm thinking maybe they're stalled out, or probably they're on their phone texting. And I look over in the car, and as I look over in the window as I'm driving by, I see the driver just like this. And I start thinking about what could be going on. And I continue to drive, and there's kind of two thoughts going through my mind. What i got to get to, and what's going on here? I pull up the road, and I, I turn over, and, and I park, and I run back, and the lights changed, and there's still the only car there, sitting there, same spot, same position. And I go up to the window, I, I pound on the window, and they wake up. I think they'd just done a little too much Christmas shopping that day. They're okay. But I was amazed their foot hadn't come off the, the brake and gone in the middle of the intersection through the red light. I was thinking it could have been all these other health things that took in place in that moment. And, and, and there was this moment of thinking, you, could have, you, you thought about continuing to drive through that. Or those moments this week that I came home so exhausted from my family and I'm trying to pour into them, but the busyness has crept in. And it keeps me from those things that I could actually magnify Jesus in. I don't know what it is for you, but that's one of the things for me that this season continues to magnify. And I miss out. Maybe for you it's this jealousy or pride, and it comes into all of the things that we want to get. Do you realize this Christmas they're estimating that each adult will spend an average of $1,724 on Christmas? As a nation, we're going to spend $720 billion this Christmas. Reminds me of another story, a guy named Reuben. Reuben grew up in the Dominican Republic. It was a difficult place where he was at. He lived in poverty. And he remembers one Christmas when his grandmother had given their father an apple. And his father brought it to their home, and it wasn't a home like you and I have. We live in luxury compared to him. And he put it on the table, and it wasn't a table as nice as what we have. And the whole family sat around the table and looked at this apple because Reuben was 16 years old and he had never before in his life seen an apple. And after a while, they cut it in half and the parents shared one half. And then the other six kids shared a slice of each of the other half of that apple. And Reuben got that apple and by this time, as he's telling the story to a guy named Matt, he's 40 years old. And as he's, he's telling it, he'd close his eyes. He'd say, I didn't eat that apple. I would, I would just smell it. He said, I, I didn't eat it because I, I was full or because I didn't want to. But I didn't eat it because if I ate it, it would be gone. And so then he would go throughout the rest of that day. And from time to time, when kind of hunger would crop up and he, he would wonder about this apple, he would just lick it. And you and I know that apple slices don't age well. But he carried that slice around the entire day. And then at the end of the day, he ate it. An apple. What if God would use the resources that we have to do something incredible? Because Reuben grew up. He got connected with a church in the U.S. And actually started a whole program. And he's spending his life serving and pouring into the people back in the Dominican Republic. He's doing something crazy that God's called him to. I wonder this Christmas if God's going to call you to something audacious. That's a big word. I had to look it up. It says it's the showing, the willingness to take a surprisingly bold risk. I think of the people that we've just read about and the big plan that God had in motion 
and the risk that he called them to. And then I think of you and I, and I realize he's not done. He's still doing audacious things, and he has something for you and I to do. And it's more than just opening presents and getting bored with them after a week. It's something that will take risk. It's going to call us out of our comfort zone. It's going to be a little scary, but it could change the world. And it'll change you in the process. And I don't know what that is for you. I can't pretend to understand or know what that is, but I bet you do. I bet there's something that God's been tugging on your heart to do that you're not sure. But he's saying, trust me. And take that step. Be bold because I have something big I want to do. Others of you may say, I don't even know what it is because I've lived so long in comfort and I just come and I consume just like this Christmas is going to be. And he's saying, let me bust you out of that because there's bigger things that you could be a part of. In fact, our chapter ends out in verse 78 and 79 with Zechariah prophesying about the big things that God is doing. Verse 78 says, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, which he goes to do in Luke 2, and to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and guide our feet in the way of peace. I love it how Eugene Peterson speaks of this in the message. Through the heartfelt mercies of God, God's sunrise will break in Upon us, shining on those in the darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way one foot at a time down the path of peace. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Our prayer is that you would show us the way into something big something audacious, something we would never dream of or that we think is impossible, something that you lead us into even though we think we're too old to do that or we're too young to do that or we're too whatever to do that. So God, right now, I pray that you would use your spirit to work within us those areas that keep us from magnifying you, that hold us back from the big risks that you're inviting us into that we just think we can't do. God, I pray that this Christmas season will be the open door to what you want to do through the rest of the year and through the rest of our lives. God, that we would dream small dreams, but we would instead say, God, you've got it all. I'm your servant. Whatever you want to do, I'm in. God, we pray that you would use us ordinary people to do some incredible things because you have set the tone by sending your son to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.